It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Today, it is my privilege to be hosting Wanda Curry. Hi, Wanda. Hi, how you doing? It's so nice to have you here. How's the weather in Philadelphia? It cooled down today. We had, we had set a record yesterday, but now it's cooler. How hot was it yesterday? It was in the hundreds. Oh, it's just brutal out here, too. Of course, when people listen to this, they're going to be wishing for warm weather because it'll be the winter. So <laughs> maybe okay. we'll make, make them jealous about the warm weather. Let me tell you a little bit about Wanda. Wanda writes, I am a vision of recovery. Vision of recovery as a healing ministry was started from our from my personal victories over addictive behaviors. I have known the deepest sorrows and experienced pain that I would not wish on anyone. I know how hard it is to be able to see the road to recovery and not having the tools and support needed to move that from vision to the reality of a recovery lifestyle. The mission is to provide Christ-centered recovery coaching to help you walk the long and challenging journey that I have walked successfully by maintaining 16 years of sobriety through faith, prayer, 12 steps, and Jesus Christ, the God of my understanding. Wanda is a certified life coach, has a master's degree in social work, and is an ordained minister. Addiction should never just be the ending, but be the beginning of a transformed life. Thank you for your bio, Wanda, and 16 years of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. Out of all of those years, what do you think was the hardest? The hardest for me was that um, people, places, and things. So I had to separate myself. The Bible says, come out from among them. I had to separate myself from all my friends. Yeah. Because a lot of my friends, um, you know, addiction is a lifestyle. So a lot of the people that I was associating with, they, we all got high together. Mm-hmm. We were just at different levels or our, our addiction had progressed. So that was the hardest part is that I had to separate myself. Um, and then another part was just coming in recovery and admitting that I had a problem because I was high functioning or, well, it's really no such thing as a high function addict, but I had a master's degree. I was always able to maintain my employment. I always had a roof over my head. So um, you're as sick as your secrets. So even though um, a lot of recoveries, particularly secular recovery is anonymous for me telling what I was dealing with helped me because I had to be honest with myself where it held me accountable. Um, and also um, it helped me with my shame by, you know, admitting this is what, who I am and this is what I'm going through. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, and I I like you. I like what you said is, you know, you were only as sick as your secrets. I know in therapy a lot, I I heard um, secrets keep you sick. And uh, I have grasped that and it's been it's been a help to me. So that's good phrasing. So um, let's go back a ways and talk about some of what led into your addiction and what were contributing factors. So tell me a little bit about your childhood growing up in Philadelphia. Well, I didn't grow up in Philadelphia, but I think what um, I grew up in a small town in Maryland. Okay. (laughs) And um, it connects with the the trauma because a lot of the trauma came out of my family of origin, my biological family. And uh, it started with... um, my parents not being married. Um, it also came from um, because my parents weren't married. Uh, they wanted my mother to put me up for adoption. I grew up in a, a religious family, so they really didn't believe in abortion. But because of um, uh, my parents not being married, uh, also colorism, the way I look, mm. Um they wanted me to be put up for adoption. And were, your so that, parents, were your parents biracial? No, but colorism as far as being um, extremely dark skinned. Okay. So I'm like one of the darkest females in my family. Okay. So in addition to they didn't like the way I looked, um, that was the first trauma. They didn't like the way I looked and it not being and not being my parents not being married. So I was kind of literally and figuratively the black sheep of the family. So mm-hmm. I was always the family outcast. Um, I became like a people pleaser and a perfectionist because I was trying to find ways to be affirmed or being accepted, the rejection. And when that didn't work, um, uh, also with sexual trauma, which um, was kind of brushed under under the rug, like you really wasn't wasn't supposed to talk about it. And right. because of all the rejection, the trauma, that's when I started like drinking and using marijuana when I was like a teenager, early teens, 13 or 14. So and- pause just a minute here and tell me um, if you're willing a little bit about your sexual trauma. Who was your abuser or have you named that before? I named it in, in the rooms. Okay. But I really don't want to name them because um, a lot of people don't know. Okay. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. I was just, tell me, tell me what you want and leave out what you, what you don't want. So, so as a teenager, then you started using to cope with some of the trauma that you had been through, right? And the rejection. And the rejection. How long did it take you to love your black skin? Well, I think what really helped is that um, when I graduated from high school, I went to Howard University. Mm -hmm. And Howard University is a a historically black college and university. Um, So that's the the, uh, college that Kamala Harris went to. So it was a it was a representation of all types of skin colors, nationalities, you know. Um, so that was at the that was at the point when I really started um, finding myself when I went to Howard University. 
Mm, uh, it was good. also a, it was I wasn't with my family or origin, and uh, it was really like a booming period for me to be away from my family, <laughs> to be away from my family. As a matter of fact, I wrote an essay about that one time, a short story, and you know um, they told Abraham to get away from your crazy kin folks. So I looked <laughs> at it like me going to Howard was a way of me getting away from my crazy kin folks, and. Um, and I'll show you. So I, I saw a lot of things when I left from around my family origin. Yeah. Yeah. So did you stay separated from your family of origin? Did you stay connected or what did that look like while you were in college? Well, I was always the type of person. Um, I always wanted to stay connected to my family. I'm a, uh, I have an MSW, a master's of social work. And so family is important. So I always was connected with my family, but I have good boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, by the fact that my college wasn't that far from my hometown, it was only like 80 miles away. But because I was growing and developing and healing in, in, in uh, Washington, D.C., I would only maybe come home for the holidays or once a month or call and things of that nature. So I always had a, um, a relationship with my family. Not a so good relationship, but a relationship. <laughs> so do good. what do good boundaries look like to you within a family system? Um, to me, when I say good boundaries, um, I don't let them, uh, they couldn't understand why I didn't want to move back to my hometown when I graduated. And I was able to, you know, to stand my, you know, um, be able to advocate for yourself. Okay. Um, If uh, they were very controlling. So being able to use I statements. Well, I understand that that's how you feel, but that's not how I feel. Mm-hmm. And so that's is a that's basically how the boundaries were. Okay, okay. So uh, as as you moved into adulthood, um, the drugs and was it alcohol also? I was never really much of a drinker. I was a smoker mostly. So it was basically like weed, and it was alcohol. But I, I mean, I know that alcohol is a drug, but I was more like wines and things of that nature yeah and then um once i um went to college um college i um became involved with the party the party scene mm-hmm. and so that's when my drug use escalated to uppers um and maybe mostly uppers and and marijuana mm-hmm. and then once i graduated from college it went to powder cocaine okay and eventually, I my last drug of choice was crack. Okay. And um, y- you had mentioned to me that you um, you had uh, struggled with some promiscuity, and was that all part of that party scene that you were in? It was the party scene, and it was the untreated trauma. Because okay. at that point, I wasn't in treatment. I wasn't in recovery. So the promiscuity was looking for love in all the wrong places. So because of that and my abandonment issues and rejection, I would attach myself to people very quickly. Mm-hmm. 
And when you attach yourself to people very quickly, that's a signal to people. Like your desperation is a signal. And so I was dating men that were basically users. Yeah. But because my self-esteem was so low, I would basically do um, do things to try to get them to stay. But of course, um, you know, if it's just a sexual connection, it's nothing else. But that was what my period of promiscuity was. It was more like a love addiction, a spirit of rejection, and low self-esteem. And just looking for love in all the wrong places. At what point did all of this become a problem? You said enough is enough and I can't do this anymore. Where, where was that moment? I think for me, it was when 16 years ago, I was in like an abusive relationship and I really couldn't figure out how to get out. And I alternated between being homicidal and being suicidal. But because of my, uh, you know, religious upbringing, of course, you know, I was, I was at that point, but I knew that I wasn't going to, you know, actually do it. And so I was on a binge, which I don't know how much drugs I used in a, in a short period of time, but in the middle of smoking, my heart, I thought that I was in the middle of a heart attack, I believe. And so I broke out sweating profusely. My heart was palpitating and I cried out to God. And I, that's how my journey of recovery started. My heart start, stopped hurting. My breathing went back to normal. And uh, I, I heard go to church. And I went to church that same morning. Were you raised in the church? Yes, we had to go to church. We had to go to church. If you didn't go to church, you couldn't go outside to play. I was involved in the choir, Sunday school. Yes. Everything. So you had walked, had you walked away from the church during, during your young adult years? Yeah, I had walked away really of when I went to college. Okay. Um. And I, and I really, and I didn't attend church for a long time. It's probably about 10 years I was away from the church. Okay. Right. So you called out to God and, and you began your recovery journey. And what did that look like? Um, at first, the recovery journey was, um, I went to Bible college. And the Bible college that I went to, the, uh, the apostle had been delivered from a heroin addiction. And um, because I really didn't want to go to rehab because from being in the, in the field in the social work, I know that rehabs, they kind of give you a, a part of the treatment is medication, which I don't really, unless a person has a, a, a psych diagnosis, I don't really think it's a good idea to be giving addicts a, a lot of medication and pills. So I really didn't want to go to a rehab. So I felt this pull to go to Bible college or call. So I went to Bible college to study Christian counseling. And eventually from going to church and uh, it was a church that was charismatic and you went to church about three or four times a week. <laughs> and so between church and Bible study, once I started tasting and seeing how good the Lord was, I lost the taste. It just went away. 
it was mm-hmm. gradually taken from me. And so that was my initial um, steps. Those were my initial, was Christ-centered recovery. Celebrate recovery, which is a Christ-centered curriculum. Right. Prayer and fasting. And that was initially my beginning of recovery. So you created Vision of Recovery. How long has that been going on? Well, it's a new ministry, but I've really been working on it forever, the preparations forever, because I kind of see um, the limitation of not doing um, int- introspective work, because I think that through doing the 12 steps and writing out, um, you get more out of your recovery or it's more lasting, or you have less of a tendency to pick up what they call process addictions. Because right. a lot of people go from drugs and alcohol to food, to gambling, to sex, to spending, religion. And so, um, because that's what was missing in my recovery. Because I had a lot of the church and I had a lot of religion, but I didn't have um, the practical things that you need to do to stay recovered or not to pick up process addictions. Right. Right. And um, process addictions. I'm sorry. My dog is being naughty right now. No problem. (laughs) Um, And process addictions, from my understanding, are harder to kick because they are not a substance. They're not something you can walk away from. It's something that is involves your body. Would you say that's accurate? They can be harder. Um, But I think the reason why they're harder is because they're less deadlier. Okay. Um, Because, you know, people that have uh, drug addictions, just like with people with the fentanyl, like a lot of the the ODs are because of what they're cutting the drugs with. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the alcohol, we know that if you drink too much alcohol, it causes cirrhosis of the liver and other problems. So it's more of a physical addiction. Okay. Whereas if somebody is addicted to gambling, it might be a long time or just like it's a new trend that they're doing a lot of, um, uh, training on is elderly and gambling. Because a lot of times people may not know that their parents or grandparents have gambling problems until maybe they come and live with them or they start becoming involved with them. And they're like, well, what happened to your money? And they'll find out, well, maybe it was bingo or, you know, the scratch off lottery tickets. So um, I think that's what the major difference is, is that they're more socially acceptable because gambling is not illegal. Um, Overeating is not illegal. Uh, working is not illegal. Shopping is not illegal. So I think that they're more acceptable. Right. And they don't and they don't have as many physical ramifications as as substance addiction, except sex addiction has some physical ramifications to it, Ken. Um, but yeah, I can see what you're saying there as far as it's more socially acceptable and easier to get away with for a for a long time before it catches up with you. Right. And then that's what my vision of recovery 
Uh, we do do a lot of work with that. I'm experienced with that because once I got rid of the cocaine, I picked up the shopping. I picked up the spending and I picked up the working. Mm-hmm. And so I was working 60 hours a day and I was spending money like I was still getting high, but the money was going on shoes and pocketbooks and eating out. And so I can understand when you're trying to fill that hole with something else, but that hole has to be filled with God or needs to be filled with God. And that's sort of like the merge or the blend with vision of recovery is that I can take you through the steps, but I also know the other things that you need to, you need to do. Like I use the life recovery Bible and I use other um, Christ center curriculums or literature, like for a workaholism, it's a book about Mary and Martha. Mm-hmm. And Martha was just going around and she was kind of like the workaholic. And so um, the woman at the well um, had what people would consider to be like a sex addiction. Yes. Um, so it's different literature that you can use that um, I think kind of bridges the gap between churches just want to say that everything can come out by prayer and fasting. And I don't think that they really want to use like literature or curriculum because they just want to stick to everything can come out by prayer and fasting. But if you really look at some of the people in the Bible, they really didn't have like total recovery or deliverance. Like they kept going around with the same issues. Okay. Interesting. Right. So you don't have to have five husbands. (laughs) <laughs> you, have to, you can stop at one, you know, you, see, so it's different things. And, that's what, and that's what recovery is. We do intervention so that you can start your walk and be transformed and start your healing journey. Now you don't have to keep going around with the same, uh, you know, uh, addictive, addictive behavior, addictive behavior. Right? Yeah. So you talk about a hole in your soul. What does that mean? A hole in your soul just means that you feel because of trauma. That's equivalent to what they call a trauma, like disassociation. Because of the trauma, a lot of people, you're just disassociated. Or you really don't feel like a connectedness to things. And so that's equivalent to a hole in your soul. So that's why they people that have trauma try to fill it up with different substances. And so, but when you try to fill it up with God, the things of God, that's when I find that you have a, a much better outcome. Mm-hmm. Or that's the desire. That That's the desire because um, I'm finding that just like we, anything can be an addiction. So even people that are in 12-step recovery, a lot of times they just keep going around from one fellowship, one program to another. And I think it's because um, that's why I never said the God of my understanding. (laughs) Because when you say the God of your understanding, that means that you don't know who you are and whose you are. But if I say that, well, you know, the God of my understanding is Jesus Christ. And I use the Life Recovery Bible, which is the Word of God. I think that's where the benefit comes in because you can't really separate, you know, yourself from God because we came from God. So that's where that whole basic comes from is as a separation between you and the Father. 
You know, um, the AA program uses the term higher power and, uh, and some refer to that as God and others refer to it as other um, beings, uh, places, different things like that. How would you distinguish your program from AA when they talk about higher power? Well, my program, we, we don't refer to, I don't refer to God as higher power. I never did. Like it, when I had the literature, all my literature, I would put God, Jesus, and Lord. Mm-hmm. And in some fellowship, they do have secular, uh, secular meetings. <laughs> God free, they call them. But my program is not God free. My my program is Christ centered. Okay. So that's the main difference. We don't. I don't say that. I don't say that. How can people? best begin on their journey to understanding their own trauma and dealing with it? What do do you say is a first step? Um, First step is to admit. And admit means that you acknowledge what happened. And you um, telling yourself the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's where the coaching and the support comes in because it's a um, judgment-free, confidential. So okay. you don't still have to have the mask of, I have to protect the family image or who you're trying to protect. Or you can move out of codependency or out of an enabling relationship by admitting this is what happened. Okay. Okay. So that would be the first step. Yeah, to admitting to admitting that. So for people who are dealing with uh, substance addiction or process addictions, so many times those are symptoms of the problem, not the problem itself, right? Right. The addictedness is the problem. That's why the addictiveness could be to anything. So when we do uh, trauma work, that's when we look at, or Christ-centered steps, that's when you really look at the underlying causes of why are you acting out addictively? Okay. okay. Is it fear? Is it rejection? Is it grief? So we look at all those three. Those are the main three, fear, grief, and rejection. And so we look at that and we use scriptures and other uh, techniques to help you get in touch with that. Okay, cool. So switch gears for me a minute. Now you are an ordained minister. Who are you ordained with? Master's Commission. Okay. And their organization in Philadelphia. Okay, cool. And so do you work in a um, church setting at all, or you just is your work exclusively with Vision of Recovery? My work is is exclusively with vision of recovery Um, because my ordination is so that I can provide um, services or ministry to people. Um, But I found from helping churches start uh, recovery ministries, it tend to be in a conflict between the mission of of recovery ministry and the mission of of the church. Um, So 
a person may want to come to, because a lot of churches don't really like to work with addicts and have recovery ministries in the church. So mm-hmm. if a church has a recovery ministry, the person might just be there to, you know, really get um, grounded in their recovery. Whereas the church wanted to put them to work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, until you get a certain level of recovery, that needs to be your primary primary focus. Um, another thing, if a person was coming to the recovery group, because we were doing Christ-centered recovery, the pastor wanted them to be members of the church. And we, and, you know, we don't, I don't force people to decide what church they want to go to. It's faith-based and it's Christ-centered, but you can pick. Denominations are man-made, so you can pick whatever church you want to go to. Right. So that's why I kind of, I go to church for my own edification, but vision of recovery is not connected. Right. Okay. It kind of follows some of the traditions of uh, the 12 step fellowships, because that's why they, a lot of the 12 step fellowships, they pay rent if they're in a church because they're fully self-supporting. So they're not really connected with the places that they have the meetings at. Right. They just Right. So that's how I kind of wanted to stay. And, and and once I had that experience, I kind of understood the traditions better because then you kind of keep the program pure and genuine as opposed to getting involved in the church politics or what's going on at the church because they're just there to get recovery. They just want to recover with Jesus. Absolutely. You, you said something earlier that um, caught my ear. You said that churches don't always, um, something along the lines that churches don't always like to have recovery um, groups in their churches. Why do you think that is? I think it's a lot of reasons. I think because people that have um, addictions, like you alluded to earlier, it, 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 uh, it starts somewhere. And I think it's like the woman that had five husbands, <laughs> people that have addictions, they have a lot of issues and a lot of problems that church really does, doesn't want to deal with, um, you know, or they don't have, to, I, I, I really say they don't have the capacity to deal with, because even though Jesus said he came for the sick, a lot of churches don't really want to deal with sick people. And That's so true. they come to church, they may have legal problems. They may have, you know, multiple fathers, multiple mothers, financial problems. Um, and so they're not coming to church, you know, neat, nice, you know. So they really need a lot of, they need a lot of uh, ancillary services that a lot of churches just don't want to do. I just find mm-hmm. that. Um, and then um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, if you, well, they call it cleaning up the wreckage of your past. So if you have a lot of wreckage to clean up, like I said, you really might not have time to serve. Uh, you really don't have a lot to give, not only financially, but emotionally, because, you know, you might be dealing with bankruptcy, child support, reunited with children. And so all of that work that you need to do as far as your recovery or cleaning up the wreckage, you don't really have anything to give to to the church. Right. Right. And well, I find it, no, go ahead. It to me, as a person who lives with mental illness, um, I run into some of the same, the same conversations with churches that 
churches are ill-equipped to deal with some of the problems and some of the challenges that come with addiction, that come with crisis, that come with mental health. But that creates this vortex where churches then don't necessarily have welcome and opening arms to to people with those challenges because they don't have the services to deal with them. And so then it makes it an uncomfortable place for people who really need to be there. it, It makes it uncomfortable for them, right? And so that's a challenge that I think our churches really need to address. Oh, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I just think it, it's hard to find a church that, like you said, anything that's outside what they would consider the norm, like mental health, uh, um, families with special needs, children, yes, uh, addiction. Um, and I just find that they just don't um, have the capacity. And I don't really think that they're interested in, in that, which is really sad because that's who Jesus came for. And Absolutely. if you read the Bible, he went to the sick. I mean, he healed the blind man, uh, uh, the per- the man that was in the in the cemetery in the tombs, cutting himself. You know that that was mental illness, self interest behavior. Um, the, you know the woman with the issue of blood. Yes. Um, you know, so God came for the sick. Um, David came out of a dysfunctional background. Absolutely. And, you know, if you've done a, a really good uh, Bible study, you know, David, Jesus came out of the house of David. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so God has always used people that was the least, the outcast, the sick. And, and so a lot of the churches, they're not really fulfilling what they should be doing. Yes, I agree. And that's something that's a matter of a matter of matter of continued work and prayer. Absolutely. So one last question for you. Um, if you could pick out one detail or one um, piece of advice, what would you most like people to know about the recovery from trauma and addiction? What's the most important thing to know? I think the most important thing is to know is that one of one of God's names is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord God that heals. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So he is a healer. And you can be healed, you can be set free, and you can be delivered. And just to always believe and to never give up hope. And uh, that's just my message that, you know, Jesus is a healer. And, you know, he, he can still heal people today and he is, he still is healing people today. And I'm a witness 16 years relapse is not part of my story. As far as drugs concerned, <laughs> relapse is not part of my story. And also the fact that, um, I'm just on a mission to help other people. That's like me, yes. because really at first I had been running from my call forever. And then God just told me, well, who else is going to do it? You see, because the reason why you have a passion for working with addicts is because you were one or because you want to do things. It's because like people can't really I can't really give everybody a a particular assignment or because it's it's just not their assignment. So that's why when you ask me about the church and see some churches, that's just not their assignment. 
And people would always tell me, well, you, you need to start a church for addicts. So you need to start a church for people that, <laughs> you know, just like how you talk about the woman that had five husbands, then you need to start a church where, you know, a person can come and they can tell their testimony that they used to be a prostitute or they used to be a stripper. And, you know, it's okay. You know, they're not going to be hit on by men of the church or the women are not going to start. <laughs> because really what happens a lot of times when people tell their testimony, they leave because, you know, people are know that you're not really supposed to. Um, I mean, people know the Bible in general, so they know Jesus is about love. But what they do is once you tell your testimony, they'll start looking at you a certain way and rolling their eyes and stuff. And they kind of run people away. And yes. even though the Bible says we overcame by the blood of the lamb, the word of the testimony. But some churches, they just can't handle people's testimony, even if they do tell a, you know, a general um like I was in a church one time and the woman said, well, I was walking up and down the street. So she really didn't even go into details, but just saying that little bit, you know, she, she ended up having to leave the church because they were like, wow. oh, she was. so, you know, really, um, that's what I would say. And just fine. Just keep on holding and keep believing and, and you will be healed. And find Jehovah Rapha. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Wanda, it has been a pleasure talking to you. If you want to know more about Vision of Recovery, you can email her at info at visionofrecovery.com. The website is visionofrecovery.com. And we will put this information in the show notes. And um, I know that uh, you have a free coaching offer that's coming up. Um, and maybe we can um, post that on our show notes when this, when this uh, airs. How about that? Yeah, that's good. And you could just, you know, you'll let me know when it's going to air. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Cause I can just change the, the time frame. It's usually All like right. seven, within 72 hours if they contact me, it's for the free coaching session. Great. Well, thank you so much for your ministry and for your openness. And I appreciate your gift of time. Thank you. God bless. God bless you too. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillReilly.author, and on Twitter, JillReillyAuthor. Email jill at jillreilly.org.